All right, let's redo. All right, from the top. Welcome to the Nuestro South podcast. My name is Jonathan, coming to you from Buford Highway in Georgia. I am joined by my fellow hosts. Uh, take it away, Allison. Hey, everyone. This is Allison from Winston-Salem. Dale, Karina. Hey, y'all. This is Karina coming to you from Burlington, North Carolina. Where are you at, Nancy? Hi, y'all. This is Nancy coming to you from Dobson, North Carolina. Today, we're taking a look at nuestras comunidades and how nuestra gente builds community across the South. Uh, this is from my gente on Buford Highway and in Georgia. We're going to be talking about our experiences as Latinas in the school system where we live in the Southeast and what education could be for us down here. So, you know, currently, you know, I'm an adult. I'm grown and I work with teachers and Latinx and immigrant youth in Georgia, mostly through the nonprofit sphere, collaborating with schools and teachers and like curriculum and uh, pedagogy, teaching, all that stuff. And I do some activist and education projects throughout Metro Atlanta too. And a big part of that is because of my own experience in the education system what I felt I lacked and just all the problems that I saw growing up in the education system, in my own education and with my peers. I got to experience school in New York uh, where a lot of my family lives to this day in Long Island, New York. But then I moved down south to Northwest Arkansas in a chicken poultry processing kind of town. And then I ended up in Gwinnett County and kind of have been hopping around Metro Atlanta for the last uh, 11 years at this point. Growing up in Arkansas, it was really weird for me to come from New York where we had all kinds of people. There were African-Americans, Latinos of all kinds, uh, Jewish people, white people, Asian, and especially hella Salvadorans, including a lot of my family members um, before we came to Arkansas. But when we came to Arkansas, that is when I was really around Mexicans and Mexican-Americans for the first time and, you know, on mass, like there were so many Mexicans and I was a minority. Uh, but there was also a lot of white people and a lot of Marshallese people, people from the Marshall Islands, which is in the Pacific, if I've never met Marshallese people. And it was really segregated. That's when I really got to experience kind of that Southern segregation, that very quiet and still atmosphere that was really different from the concrete jungle of New York. Uh, white Southern ladies who said things like, you know, sweet gravy, you know, and talked about chatty Cathy's, you know, what, which was so new to me. Uh, that, those were my teachers and a lot of them were nice. A lot of them were great, you know, Southern hospitality and all that. And a lot of them were racist. And I ended up going to schools as we got older into middle school and high school where Latinos and Marshallese kids were seen as gang members and were seen as troublemakers in this Northwest Arkansas town. And then we moved to, you know, Metro Atlanta where things weren't that different. It was a little bit more urban, a lot more city, um, being, you know, in proximity to the city of Atlanta. But a lot of the same things were happening where Latinos were kind of, there were low expectations for us. There were teachers that would just tell us, you know, I don't care if you learn or not, I'm gonna get my paycheck anyway. We, I went to a school called Meadow Creek High School in Gwinnett County that was called Ghetto Creek High School uh, because we were all Latinos and black uh, folks and, you know, immigrants. You know, we were low performers. People were getting pregnant left and right and we were criminalized, you know, people saw us as, you know, as criminals, right? People saw us as gang members. And so, you know, it oftentimes felt like a prison as opposed to a place of welcome and learning. And even when teachers would try to do their best to work against like, you know, student apathy and all the inequalities in their school system, it just wasn't enough to really help so many students of color really uh, sobresalir, you know, have um, success and graduate. 
Um, and you know, a lot, we, there was never a moment where I saw Latino teachers in my school systems in Arkansas and in Atlanta. So, you know, given these experiences, that's what made me want to go into education as a teacher. And eventually I ended up doing a lot of other things along the way, like through education nonprofits that mentored youth around college, um, especially undocumented students that needed extra support with, you know, anti-immigrant laws in the state. Um, I did end up, end up teaching, creating curriculum. I ended up protesting outside of school boards, all these different things, right? And so, you know, education in the South for Latinos has a long way to go. Um, and But I think that it's our generation, it's us who is going to really make a lot of those changes with our insight and our perspectives. So I definitely want to hear about y'all's experiences in the school system and what education has meant for you and your families. Um, so here goes my first question, if y'all are ready. Uh, I want to know what role did school and education play in your life and in your family growing up? Thank you for sharing, Jonathan. For me, at school, I I enjoyed the sense of connection I think I had in a lot of my earlier years and then also later, even if it didn't always look the same way. But in the role I think school and education plays in my life is I see it as this place where I can really expand my perspectives and learn more about the world and kind of general themes like that. But also more specifically, I see it as a way to to maybe get a better job or to try and seek out new opportunities. And something I've seen a lot is that with access, because I'm a dual enrollment student, so I'm also taking classes at Forsyth Tech Community College. And there's a lot of there's a lot of knowledge that I can get with that email. We have access to NC Live and the amount of documentaries there that I'm able to access and the amount of articles that can get really specific that talk about these issues I'm really interested in. And so having those sources of reliable information readily accessible has really impacted me. Wow. School and education. Well, first of all, thank you to both of you for sharing. Um, uh, being in school itself is just tough. Yikes. Especially like with being like, at least for me, you know, a Latina, it uh, sucks. But School and education for me have played a really big role in my life and for my family, not um, only because, so I know I am first generation, pretty much everything <laughs> from middle school, high school, um, college education. Yikes, it's been a lot um, because of the really difficult environment that I grew up in with being in the South and along with, you know, other things that come with being firstborn child of a family of immigrants, um, of undocumented immigrants specifically, right? There's a lot of intergenerational trauma that goes into that. And where, at least for me, like um, I use school and education kind of as an outlet to cope, which, you know, people learn over the years that that will not always work, but it's fine. You find other outlets and that's how we all have healing, right? Um, within our communities and community building. But because of my family's sacrifices, it just taught me personally to never take education for granted and to make the most of my educational opportunities. It became especially important to me when I would hear about stories of like, for example, with my dad, which this is a story that he's really comfortable sharing with everyone. So it's not an issue with me sharing it. But he would always tell me, it's like, yeah, you know, when I was little, side note, grew up in, in a poor indigenous community in Mexico at the time, um, always dreamed about being a teacher, could not do that because he had to, you know, work out in the fields in other states across the country in Mexico at like eight, starting age, like six and whatnot. Right. So that to me, hearing those stories, like from when I, 
from a very young age, just really pushed me to really prioritize education and to like sobresalir and use that not only to um, improve my own um, generational wealth, but also give back to my own family. And that's what I've been trying to do over the last few years and hope to continue to do in the future. And that's really the role it has played in my life and for my family as a form to sobresalir. Dang, y'all are really just trying to make me cry today, tugging at my heartstrings <laughs> with this conversation. Um, but thank you all just for being so vulnerable and sharing your stories. It definitely makes it easier to, for me to talk about this too, knowing that so many of us, of us experience the same things. I definitely saw school as my safe space. It was that place that I could go to just to learn. Like I wouldn't have to think about issues at home, issues just basically in the world happening around me. Um, and I saw it in two ways. I saw education as a way to make sure that my parents' investment and sacrifice in me not go to waste. But I also saw it as my way out. Um, and by that, I mean that I never always had the same view of the community that I live in right now. Um, it's a town with not many resources, very under-resourced. Um, and I just didn't see myself having a future here. So I thought that with my education um, and going off to college, it would be my opportunity to, you know, go farther in life. Um, and I thought education was that tool for me to use. Um, so I've always been, you know, very nerdy, very um, involved in my education but I feel like there was always this disconnect between um, how my parents and I connected to my school. I mean, my parents would do anything for me to give me all the resources I need um, to help me excel in school. But in regards to actually helping me with my schoolwork or, you know, helping me with school, they couldn't. You know, my parents are some of the most intelligent people I've ever met. But the thing is, they don't have a formal education. And that's how it is for many of us, right? Um, and I think it's very important to clarify that conversation about like, oh, our parents aren't educated. No, they are. They just don't have that, you know, little special paper on their wall. Like, I just know that my mom would have been one of the best engineers ever. And my dad, I don't know what my dad would be good at. I just know he's smart. Okay. But I just, I just really value that in them. But I think it was very hard, you know, to see them struggle with the fact that they couldn't help me in everything you know so i think i really do value education in that way um but i think you know there's there's a lot of issues with it too you know it's multifaceted yeah thank y'all for sharing you know your experiences and i think that we can all like relate to each other right and how you know for a lot of us education felt like our way out of poverty felt like our way to different opportunities right we had to get an education to you know so that our parents sacrifice could be worth it right of coming to this country and for a lot of us that had really unstable homes and dysfunctional like childhoods maybe like school was a safe haven for us and in difficult times right um and you know i'm glad that we slipped through the cracks i'm glad that we were able to become you know first generation middle school, high school, college graduates. Um, I'm on my second master's right now. And, you know, that's something that my family, you know, they don't they don't really even understand what that means. But to be able to get to this point and to, you know, have all these opportunities, like it's just something unheard of in a lot of our families. And I know that each and every one of us is going to get our bag, do what we got to do 
reach the goals that we have. But unfortunately, like for a lot of the kids in our school system, a lot of Latino kids, brown kids, kids of color, they don't manage to make it through the school system because of all these issues that we've kind of been pointing to where a lot of kids don't feel supported and don't have the resources that we need. And so, you know, I really want to like us to dive deeper and um, with this next question, um, I want to know, you know, what was a moment or a couple moments that just sit inside of your soul um, that where you felt that your education inspired and empowered you, but also disillusioned and disempowered you? So for me, my school is very diverse, and I think a lot of us gravitate toward the program because we see a lot of opportunity in getting these credits early and being able to save money on college or being able to being able to have that experience. And so a lot of moments that really inspire me or empower me are seeing these students graduate. I was a marshal last year and seeing them walk across that stage and knowing so many of them were these first generation college students, they were paving these paths for themselves and their families. It really inspired me. And there was this one student, I forgot exactly which flag it was, but he held it up and while he was walking across the stage and everyone cheered and it just felt like a really nice moment. I've had many moments of both, both disempowerment and empowerment. Um, and they both things have come from both negative and positive things. So when I think back of like into the K through 12 part of my education. Um, so I actually ended up going to like six different elementary schools because that's how much I moved around when I was a little kid because of my parents like unstable jobs um, with, you know, being docu- undocumented in the South. Um, there were many times, at least from, from what I saw just from that and like how I would see things change between different schools. Um, and that would re- that contrast would really show when the demographics of ethnicities and races in the schools would change to lean more toward a higher percentage of white folks in the school. So when I was in high school, um, which I attended high school here here in Alamance County, um, I ended up switching from the predominantly um, black and brown middle school in the county that would then go on to the predominantly black and brown high school, right? Which was Cummings High School. I ended up moving because my parents were able to finally, you know, buy a house. So different part of the city. And then I ended up moving into Williams High School, which was um where all the old money white folks went in Burlington and the way I saw the drastic changes in the terms of like resources that were offered not only like AP courses counselors who truly cared and didn't just like check off boxes god that really really made me mad like like I was like oh no, 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 no. They're not going to continue doing this. Uh-uh-uh. I'm going to prove them wrong. And I say prove them wrong because um, I remember my first day of classes, I walked in to like, I forget what AP course it was. I don't know. It was freshman year, long time ago, back in 2014, maybe 2013. Yeah, it was 2014, I think. Maybe 2013. I don't remember. Point is, I walked in and when I was used to being in like all these honors classes where they were all like um, other like brown, black and brown kids, I walked into a classroom where I was the only bipoc person in the classroom and i was just remember just going into culture shock and i was like oh god no and i remember hearing things about like oh um things that would influence my imposter syndrome at the time and 
with things that the kids would say because they knew that I was a low-income Latina student so come from an immigrant family. I, it would also come from administrators and teachers that would say the same things about... Um, but I remember hearing things that um, professors or teachers would say at the time and administration and being like, oh, maybe we should put her in another classroom, this and this and that. And that stuff would like just really make me mad because they wouldn't do that for other new white kids in those classes. Um, but anyway, that made me push through all through high school and to prove all the other kids in school wrong, which I don't know if I would have the same motivation if I would have been, if I would not have heard a lot of the things that would contribute to my imposter syndrome at the time. But they definitely made me push forward and empowered me really to do better. And then there I was, then I graduated and got my education. Yeah, all to say, Negativity empowered me in a really crappy school system in Almas County at the time. Shout out to y'all for being the older Latinx scholars, you know, paving the way for younger Latinx scholars. First of all, uh, I just wanted to give y'all that shout out because y'all really do deserve it. Um, and back to your question, though, I think one of the things that empowered me um, throughout my high school experience, at least. Um, so junior year. I read this text from Gloria Ansaldua called How to Tame a Wild Tongue. And I was also a dual enrolled student. I went to an early college, so I was a full-time college student while I was a high school student too. And I provide that context because the first time I read Gloria Ansaldua, or actually even the first time I read anything by a Latina author, by a queer Latina author too, was when I took an elective college class. And I think it didn't hit me, like the lack of representation didn't hit me until that moment because of the feelings that I felt when I read that text. Like when I read her words, they felt like my own. And I think I was, I me enojé tanto, like I'm even getting mad right now too. Like I just felt like I had been robbed of that for like 16 years of my life. And ever since I read that text, like... I, I was empowered to talk to my teachers and my um, school administrators about it. So um, around one year ago, uh, to be exact, September 15th, the start of Latina Heritage Month, I um, sent out an email to all my school administrators um, and I talked to them about this. I talked to them about how, hey, our school is around 50% Hispanic Latina and you know our students are being deprived of this. Um, and I just feel like, hey, like, these are some things that we need to address, like, no need to feel guilt about it. Let's just, like, get over the sorrow feelings and talk about it. And what happened was that they ignored me. They felt attacked. They got defensive. And that whole feeling of empowerment, that whole start of that movement that I wanted to create within my own school turned into this process of a whole year of me um, just arguing back and forth with the professors at my school over whether I deserve this type of education that all these other non-POC like kids are getting. And, you know, not to get sad or whatever, but like that whole process really damaged my relationship with education you know that that relationship that was a safe haven to me turned into a place that I didn't even want to go to like I, I prided myself in never skipping a day of school since I started in pre-k to finding it hard to even get out of my bed in the mornings and even show up to class like they had robbed me of something that I treasured so much um 
unfortunately, I did have professors that, you know, helped me through that. Um, my one college professor, the one that introduced me to college, to Gloria Ansaldua. She was my biggest supporter. Shout out to Miss Sarah, right? Um, and then it just went back on to me trying to talk to the school board with some of my friends and then having to go through that same experience of them invalidating us, of them telling us that we were making up these things, that we didn't need these extra resources, that the handed down textbooks that were missing at least 30 pages were enough, that the moldy walls in our classrooms were more than enough. Um, it was really a truly hard experience and it gave me a shit ton of issues. Um, but I think it's something that I'm glad I did. And I don't say this to discourage other students from doing the same for advocating for yourself. I, I tell you this because these movements are very powerful and they are very meaningful, but it's hard, you know, because we have to advocate for ourselves. And you know what, it's hard, but hey, Surrey County Schools, Surrey Early College teachers, whenever y'all are more mature um, to talk about it and whenever y'all get over your um, uh, racism and white fragility, then, you know, call me back and let's have that conversation again. Um, so yeah, I'll be expecting your call anytime soon. Wow, that was, you know, thank you for, you know, all that work that you did in your school and your school district, Nancy. and. Thank you all for sharing your, your experiences, right? Like how the beautiful things that education can give us, but also the ways that education can disengage us, can hurt and harm us, right? And, you know, I'm glad that you brought up Ansaldua, Nancy, because, you know, one of the my big crusades that I've been working on here in Atlanta, at least, has been exposing students to Latinx studies. You know, we have so much, we have rich histories and writers and thinkers that we have never and probably will never get exposed to unless we are able to take that one or two like Latino studies class at a certain university in the South, you know? Um, and so, you know, that's been my big crusade, exposing, you know, our, 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 our niños, our estudiantes to our, to Latinx studies, to our study of ourselves in a way that helps us become those people that keep expanding history and our, our writers and adv and a our advocates too, like you have been doing, Nancy. So, you know, thank you all for all that. And so this, and this brings me to my last question, right? Because this is something that I think about a lot and that I work on a lot. And so I want us to step into a space of imagination. I want us to, I want us to imagine a world where only the good things that we talked about are part of our education system and all the ugly, awful, disenfranchising elements of our education no longer exist. If you could reimagine our schools and our education system, what would our schools look like? What would ideal schools in the South for Latinx and immigrant students look like? So my chemistry teacher, shout out to Miss Wright, she does this thing where every month she features um, a scientist on her board. And that has exposed me to so many Black scientists, to so many Latino scientists, Latine. And I just being able to see us succeeding and not having that representation and not having it in a very narrow, only white people, rich people can succeed in these fields in these ways kind of way really felt encouraging. And just having that and having it that's something constant in there, I think a lot of what you all are saying really holds true for that. And to a school and education system that I would like to look, what I would like to look like is having these books, having these authors 
who come from other perspectives versus just one and having having the resources also to be able to have these. Thank you for sharing. Um, for me, it's definitely, if I had to focus on two things, there are two things that just really, really stand out to me as to what ideally schools would look like here in the South, or at least here in North Carolina, right? Start off with brand new textbooks or whether they're physical, digital, whatever, you know, really just demonstrating what our true history is, you know, like people's, white people's ancestors, like, um, committed so much genocide, you know, and just rewriting a lot of these books with accurate depictions of, of past events and also what continues to happen. Right. And from a different perspective, that's not from a white man's perspective. I think it's just really important and incorporating, right. Our um, Latina histories from the South, because yes, we may, we may not have been here a very long time compared to other parts of the country, right? But we've been here a while. It's not like we just arrived like ayer. Like we've been here a while and it's important to teach how much we've grown over the years, over the decades and these different parts of the South. And then that way we can then translate that same history to other parts of the South or same methodology of like community building. So that way we don't have to start from scratch, you know? Um, What I like to say is, you know, um, work smarter, not harder. So starting with that, And the second thing that just really I think is also important is making college access um, courses mandatory. I'm starting that from very early on, whether it's in like eighth grade of like middle school or like freshman year of high school, right, where the public school system has like all these counselors dedicated to only college access and promoting college access instead of people having to figure out how to find it through other organizations, right? And that just being gatekept in general. And I think if that's done, it would not, one, again, providing college access to kids, right? But then it also would expose others to finding out of, like, other other educational opportunities where it's just, like, you know, not everyone wants to go to a four-year university and get other um, degrees that require a long time. Like, trades, like, community colleges with, like, specific trades are just fine. And some people are just want that but don't know how to even like get to that point to where they know where to where to apply or how to do everything or even just filling out basic um financial aid forms right so i think definitely if we were to begin by focusing by providing accurate history and our history in our schools and additionally implementing college access resources that are mandatory that the state funds you know i think we would be on a really good path to getting more kids in school and just really a progress and growth of our people in the area. I want to second that point, Karina, about college access. Like, um, I just finished uh, high school and this is my first semester as a college student. And I really don't think I would be at the place where I am now without the college advice and support from College Consejos, which is a program under Latinx Ed, and it provides like college advice and even like just informa- basic information about how to navigate the college application process to Latinx students across North Carolina. Um, and I think I am so grateful to have had that resource in my life because I didn't want to be getting advice from people who told me that my they were the only reason my sister got into college, told me that the dual enrollment classes that I was taking were the closest that I would be ever 
to uh, having a college education, but also they weren't trying to they weren't trying to provide a support for um, college applications because they didn't think we could ever reach that. Um, so just having someone like us, having someone from our background give me information, um, like explaining to my parents what FAFSA is, telling them it's okay to provide that sort of information when we're so concerned about, you know, socials and stuff like that. I think that is one great resource. And I encourage any high school student, whether you are thinking of college or not, to seek that resource out. Um, and also personally, to answer that uh, your question, Jonathan, um, when you asked that question, I just remembered this little kid that I taught um, for summer school. Um, and this summer school was under the migrant education program. And I just remember on the last day of our classes, I just felt like crying because he was one of the smartest little kids that I have ever met. Um, he Every time we asked questions, he was the first to answer and he was so eager to learn. And at the end of the day, he even told one of our supervisors like, oh, like, I love them as my teachers. Like, I feel like this is the most I have ever learned. And the only difference was that I taught my class in Spanish. And like, you know, like, it, I just made cultural references that we both knew, like, and like, I taught things that like, from our community too. And I think like, he just stood out to me so much because he reminded me so much of like my friends. Like, he, he reminded me so much of my friend Sebastian, um, you know, just another immigrant little brown boy who came into school not learning and not knowing how to speak English, but one of the most intelligent people I have ever known in my life. But the only reason his intelligence isn't recognized is because it, he wasn't being in a taught in a way that recognized it, you know? And I just think that if schools really honored our first languages or even understood where students were coming from, you know, recognizing our backgrounds and not seeing that as a, as a deterrent, but as a resource, as a superpower, there would be so many more kids that would be in these so-called gifted programs, you know, and that's a whole nother conversation for another day that I can go for on for hours. But I think that if schools truly want every child to succeed, then let's pay attention to every child's needs, um, which I don't think schools are currently doing now. And I don't know. I just think that if we truly like support every student, then we should be paying attention more to those students that are falling behind than those who are like so-called exceeding more than other students. And that's just my two cents. That was beautiful, y'all. Thank you for sharing your dreams about what our education system, what our schools could look like. Uh, let me walk you through my dream school. We are approaching the school building. The name of the school is Nuestra Escuelita. And as you're walking in, you look to the side and you see all of these crops with corn, with beans, with so many of the foods that people in the community eat. And there is an agricultural teacher talking to students about the ways that our indigenous ancestors cultivated the land, harvested the land, and students were you know, we're picking weeds out, applying their agricultural education to think about what it looks like to coexist with the land. We walk into the school, we see murals of our heroes, our, our Latino, Black, Asian American, Indigenous heroes and writers like Ansaldúa. We see all of this color, all of this art on the walls. We see quotes from these impactful books that, you know, we are reading in our classrooms. 
we hear Spanish, we hear Mayan languages, we hear indigenous languages in our bilingual classrooms as we're walking down the hall. We're talking about Ansaldua, we're talking about Langston Hughes. We're having discussions about why certain immigration policies are being passed and what we can do about it, how we can organize our community to get rid of this law. We're also talking about math and science and learning about our scientists, like the first Salvadoran American astronaut to go to the moon two weeks ago. Um, we're hearing all these languages, we're reading all of these books, and we go to the cafeteria and it smells like frijoles charros, it smells like pupusas, it smells like flan. And, you know, we see students smiling. We see students enjoying their lunch and looking at the watch because they're so excited for their next social studies class or their next math class or next science class. Then a fight breaks out in the cafeteria. But instead of cops walking in, we see a couple therapists coming in. We see healers coming in and engaging in restorative justice processes with these students instead of calling the cops. There are no cops in this school. We don't need cops in this school. We don't need to send these kids to prison. We have everything we need in our school. Everybody's needs are met. Students are happy to be learning. Teachers are happy to be teaching. Parents come to the town hall in the evening to talk about what changes they want to make in the curriculum, what needs they have at the moment so that the school leaders can write it down and find ways to accommodate the needs that parents and students are expressing. These are the schools that we deserve. And it's going to take a lot of work, but we can get there. And it's going to take us in Nuestro South to create Nuestras Escuelas, but I'm confident that we'll be able to do it. Thank you for tuning in and be on the lookout for our future episode. This was all for our folks in the Dirty South. This is for us, y'all. If you connected with our stories, make sure to like, share, and subscribe.